Eating your greens while being green? It's possible and delicious. With Green Chef, you get the most sustainable meal kit, plus $130 off and free shipping with code CURB130 at greenchef.com slash CURB130. Greenchef.com slash CURB130. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto here with my great friend, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. And tonight we are going to be talking about some hotcakes and uh, giving some hot takes, Paul. That's why we call this Hot Cakes and Hot Takes. <laughs> great stuff. It's not just Good. a clever name. It's an important background for the <laughs> listeners. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is where we talk about some practice-changing articles or news stories in medicine. And of course, we have with us two great producers, friends, co-hosts. Uh, Dr. Rahul Ganatra and Nora Toronto. Paul, first, will you tell them what is it that we generally do on the curbsiders? Well, I mean, regardless, we are always the internal medicine podcast, but generally we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Um, as longtime fans of the show know, this is a little bit of a different format. We only have one expert and then a couple of smart people and then me um, going through the articles of the day that might be practice changing too at this time. And we're just trying to work on our own critical appraisal skills that we do out loud in front of a bunch of listeners. So before we get into the the main articles, I just wanted to give people a chance to give some picks of the week. Rahul, I'm going to let you go first because I know you don't like to follow Paul. Thank you. Finally. Okay. So I have a good pick of the week this week. Uh, this is something called the Novel Concierge, and I doubt any of you have heard of it. So let me tell you about it. You know that feeling when you take a chance on a book that somebody recommends to you because they've assured you, like, I know you, you're going <laughs> to love this book, and it turns out to be a home run? So an amazing right. feeling, right? So my pick of the week is essentially there's this bespoke service that will do this for you, uh, and it's called the Novel Concierge. And the way it works is you fill out this form online with your preferences, your favorite books, why you like to read, what you're looking for, et cetera. And a few days later, you'll get an email with some recommendations that are tailored exactly for you. And this is run by a brilliant and inspiring woman named Amy Summerton. Uh, who is an editor and a writer and just an all-around brilliant person. She's done editorial work for Dave Eggers and McSweeney's and other kind of juggernauts. And the Novel Concierge is a small enough operation that you actually can't just Google it. You have to go to her website. And we can put the link in the show notes. It's uh, www.summerton.com slash concierge. I am very excited to check and, this uh, out. That's super yeah. cool. Is she going to be mad at you for blowing up her spot? <laughs> no. It, I asked her ahead of time. Okay. And, uh she does this for free. The only payment she asks is that you order any recommendations from an independent bookstore. Oh, that's so great. So you can feel oh, doubly good. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Check it out. What's the latest book recommendation that you got from it? I'm still waiting on my oh. recommendations. All right, Nora, do you have a quick pick of the week for the audience? Yeah, so I'm just rolling with my TV theme right now. Um, I just watched Mozart in the Jungle, uh, which is a four-season show, I think on 
Amazon Prime um, that uh, is wonderful. It's about uh, musicians in an orchestra and a kind of an eccentric conductor um, played by Gail Garcia Bernal. um, That's just great, very funny, uh, lots of beautiful music that's kind of gotten me back into classical music again, which is fun. I'm going to give a quick pick of the week that I know Paul will will hate. And this is actually, Paul, I've recently got a pull-up bar in the house, one of those ones that hooks under, it hooks underneath the door and attaches to the top of the door frame, and it's kind of like tension. And uh, it's it's just great. Me and the boys, my, my seven, eight, and 10-year-old boy in there doing pull-ups. Some of them can, some of them can't, and it, it's fun. And I like, I like, just like having exercise equipment strategically placed around because I don't have a lot of time to work out, Paul. So if I feel like uh, pull-ups, it's there. I'm 90% sure you've already recommended a pull-up bar on this show. No, I did not. <laughs> I think I TRX, jump rope. I don't think I've recommended a pull-up bar. All right. I, I, did. I certainly want to come back and double check. <laughs> I I saw a patient in the emergency room like a couple weeks ago who had her pull-up bar had broken the molding where it had been sitting and she had fallen and like broken a bone in her hand. Oh, because wow! It fell on her. So watch out. I think so. I'll be okay. Case report. I have to I have to bend my <laughs> I have to bend my knees in order to use this. So I don't think I'll be to get hurt if I fall on my carpet <laughs> below me, but. <laughs> I could see that happening. All right. And Paul, I, everyone's <laughs> waiting for your pick of the week. Oh, not like three people care. But I'm going to recommend um, a video game this time around. I'm going to recommend the 2019 game Disco Elysium. It's so basically it's this atypical role playing game. Basically, the protagonist that you play, you wake up in a trash hotel room with no memory of who you are, how you got there. And as the game progresses, you find out that you're actually a cop who's there to solve a murder that happened outside the hotel that you're at. Someone is found hanged there. And you're, you're basically takes place in this alternate world that is very complicated and geopolitical. And it's so fully realized that the person who wrote the script for the game, it's like a million <laughs> words. And it is the game itself, it looks like a beautiful watercolor. Like it, it is gorgeous to look at. The dialogue is incredible. The attributes that you kind of build up with your character are almost nonsensical. Like there are things like um, Inland Empire, where if you build your skill in that, you can talk to your necktie and it just tells you weird things. Like the whole game is just <laughs> bananas. But the writing is so clever. The voice acting is tremendous. It is, it really, it assumes the intelligence of the player that is great. And like it, it's, just endlessly surprising. So it's it's a, it's a game I really enjoyed playing as you try to figure out who you are and who the dead person is and what happened to them. And then also it just it, the, the whole thing is just one surprise after another that really does not take your intelligence for granted. Um, so it's, it's a game I like a lot. So that's Disco Elysium uh, from ZAUM Studios. Well, before we get on, I wanted to remind the audience that this and most of our episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And we just wanted to say that on the Hotcake Show, we're practicing critical appraisal. And me personally, and I, I think I can speak for my co-hosts, have tremendous respect for people that do research. And so when if we sound like we're being harsh on the articles, it, it's just we're just trying to perform critical appraisal. And I personally could say that these people, I have tremendous respect for how much work goes into research because I, I don't do research. So uh, thank you for putting it out there. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Relationships take work. A lot of us will drop anything to go help someone we care about. We'll go out of our way to treat other people well, but how often do we give ourselves the same treatment? So for instance, for me, it's really important that I find time to at least watch one new movie and explore some new music each week. It's the way that I I refill my well. It's the way I feel like a human being again. 
And this month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to invest time in yourself and take care of the most important relationship you have, which is the one that you have with yourself. And whether it's hitting the gym, making time for that movie, making time for that haircut, or even trying therapy, you are your own greatest asset. So invest the time and effort into yourself like you do for other people. As I've mentioned before, this is an extraordinarily stressful time to be alive. I, I think we keep waiting for the world to calm down a little bit, and it doesn't seem like the world wants to do that. So there's probably no better time to invest in your own mental well-being. And therapy is sometimes a really helpful way to kind of make sure that your own thoughts and your own emotions are organized so you can cope with the onslaught of the day-to-day affairs that seem to keep coming at us. Uh, and BetterHelp is here to help you with that. It is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It is much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Curbsiders listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com curb. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash curb. Our sponsor for this episode is Panacea Financial, the national bank for doctors by doctors. As a doctor, I can tell you the average bank isn't built for our community. They see our debt levels or limited credit history as red flags. At Panacea Financial, they get it because they have lived it. As a bank founded by two physicians, they are dedicated to providing solutions for the unique needs of doctors and doctors in training, including their PRN personal loan. Do you have a good way to cover the costs of moving for residency, fellowship, or even becoming an attending? Do you want to avoid credit cards or refinance existing and expensive credit card debt? Then check out their PRN personal loan as a way to help. It has a period of no or low affordable payments, no cosigner requirement, and low fixed interest rates that don't depend on your credit score. Even if you don't need any of Panacea's doctor-specific loans, that also includes student loan refinance or practice buy-in loans, you can refer a friend and Panacea Financial will pay up to $250 for each referral. And there is no limit to how many people you can refer. Join the growing number of doctors nationwide that expect more from their bank and have switched to Panacea Financial. Visit PanaceaFinancial.com today to learn how a bank for doctors by doctors can help you. Panacea Financial is a division of premise member FDIC. And with that, Nora, can you tell us about our first article? Sure. So um, today I'm going to talk about the PLUS trial, which was just published uh, in the New England Journal uh, a couple weeks ago. It's by Fimfer et al. And it looks at the question, which we've we've tried to take a look at a couple different ways over the years, um, whether there's a better fluid than others. Um, so is normal saline better than lactated ringers? Is uh, uh, are balanced electrolyte solutions better than normal saline overall? And this is in the context of a couple of uh, trials of various designs over the last few years um, that that showed potential increase in mortality with normal saline, most notably uh, the SMART trial in 2018. And so... Uh, that's kind of the general context behind the trial, the PLUS trial. Um, and uh, the PLUS trial looked at about 5,000 patients and was double blind and randomized controlled and compared uh, patients receiving plasmolite to patients receiving normal saline in the ICU setting. They followed patients over approximately 90 days um, and looked at outcomes over those 90 days, uh, primary outcome being mortality overall, and then uh, secondary outcomes, initiation of renal replacement therapy and increases in creatinine. 
So that's that's the general overview of the study. Um, the study was overall a negative trial. That is to say that there was no significant difference between uh, the group receiving normal saline and the group receiving plasmalite, which was a balanced multi-electrolyte solution that uh, that they compared it with. And this is plasmalite 148, which is one of the one of the different types. Um, and so there were no differences in overall primary outcome, uh, so overall mortality, nor in uh, rates of initiation of renal replacement therapy or uh, increases in creatinine. So this is a negative so trial. that's kind of the general Negative overall. trial, yeah. Rahul. With negative trials, if I'm remembering correctly, we want to think about, was there anything about the way they set this up that might have caused this result to be negative? Was it powered correctly? Can you tell us, did you see any reason here, anything that might have caused the result to be this way? Yep. I think that is the right way to approach the appraisal of a negative study. The most important question to ask is, if there really was a difference, would this study have identified it? Uh, or do we have to worry about uh, having missed that difference due to reasons uh, uh, attributable to chance and bias? So in this study, I mean, most of the time with negative studies that we're worried about, you know, missing a real world difference, um, most of the time that has to do with power. But um, ascertainment of the outcomes can also affect this. In the case of this study, you know, it's worth talking about power for just a moment because uh, like many uh, research studies conducted around the time of the COVID pandemic, this study was stopped early. Um, and as a result, the authors uh, had a smaller uh, study size than they anticipated. And this meant that they could detect, a, they could only detect a larger difference in mortality between the two groups and what they initially expected. The trial was initially designed to, to find anything greater than a 2.9% absolute risk reduction, but because of the pandemic, uh, they got fewer people, and so that was actually increased to a 3.8% absolute risk reduction. So uh, this is something to be aware of. In this study, I'm actually not very concerned about um, power uh, leading to a false negative finding, and I'll tell you why. If you look at the point estimates for the primary outcome in table two, okay, um, you see that the odds ratio is really close to one, okay, and the absolute uh, difference in rates of the of the primary outcome uh, that they cite, I think it was uh, with death within ninety days of randomization, twenty one point eight percent of the balanced solution group and twenty two percent of the saline group. So that difference is really close to zero. And the confidence interval is pretty symmetric on both sides. Now, the way that a study that is underpowered typically looks is the point estimate is far away from either zero if you're talking about difference or one if you're talking about a, a ratio. And the confidence interval just misses uh, statistical mm -hmm. significance. So that's the situation where you worry about a trial being underpowered. So this isn't a foolproof argument, but you know the fact that the point estimate is really close to zero makes me uh, a little bit less worried about being underpowered. And I guess putting this one in context, uh, Nora, did you find any, because as you said, this was, we've been back and forth. I think everyone started using LR in the past few years after the small, SMART and the SALTED trials came out, that one was in non-ICU patients, one was in ICU patients, and then then there was more recently in 2021, the basic trial that was another trial like this one in ICU patients that didn't find a difference with the balanced solution versus saline. Do you think now it's going to swing back where we can just use saline if we want to uh, instead of uh, balanced solutions? I, I'm not sure. That's my question from all this. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that 
I don't know that this is going to dramatically change practice in one direction or the other. Um, we were talking about how the evidence of absence is not the uh, absence of evidence. Um, and you can kind of flip that the other way as well, just because this, this trial didn't show an effect, um, an improvement in mortality with LR doesn't mean that there may not be one in certain subgroups, though, though in this trial specifically, there wasn't evidence of it. Um, perhaps because of those reasons related to power. The one question I did have for you, Rahul, was, was just about the kind of one source of bias that they mentioned um, in the, in the um, discussion, which was that the patients in the balanced electrolyte solution group did overall receive more normal saline than the patients at kind of open label than the patients who uh, were in the um, normal saline group received of balanced electrolyte solutions and kind of what direction you think, if any, that that would actually uh, play into increasing or decreasing the effect size. Yes. So We've talked about sources of chance that could bias towards a false negative finding, and we've kind of talked about why in this particular study, I'm not too worried about power contributing to this being a negative study. So now we're talking about sources of bias that could make a negative result more likely. And in this study, there was a high degree of crossover between the two groups, and not just crossover, but differential crossover. And by this, I mean more people randomized to the balanced electrolyte solution ended up getting contaminated, if you will, with saline than patients who were randomized to the saline group ended up getting contaminated with balanced solution. And it wasn't a small difference. It was pretty ginormous, actually. Like 63% of patients in the balanced electrolyte group got at least a half liter of saline, compared with only about 4% of patients in the normal saline group ended up getting some balanced electrolytes. So we don't know how much they ended up getting. Um, the median amount of fluids in both groups was about four liters. So basically this is, you know, looking for the number, the percentage of people who got at least 10 to 15% of their total fluid volume as the alternate uh, study fluid. So if there really was a benefit to balanced electrolytes, the fact that so many patients in that group ended up getting normal saline does make you ask the question, you know, could that create a bias towards a negative study. So if there truly is a benefit, that's one source of bias I can identify that uh, could make a negative study more likely. Nora, I think for time-wise, we we have to hear, how many hotcakes do you give this? Will this change your practice? Um, I think I'll give it three hotcakes. Uh, it, it is interesting and I think adds to this body of evidence, but I don't know that it's going to drive me towards... Uh, towards using normal saline and LR equivalently all the time. <laughs> all right. Rahul, any final points on this one? And you work as a hospitalist. Do you, would this change things for you? You know, that's the bottom line, isn't it? I think my personal opinion is that uh, because this study, the confidence intervals for the primary outcome really did not exclude a benefit of balanced electrolytes, um, this study is something that I consider to be kind of non-informative on that question. And my um, prior probability of balanced electrolytes uh, having an advantage over normal saline was high. So I would say that this study doesn't dissuade me from wanting to use balanced electrolyte solutions. It may be the case as you know, meta-analyses are done and, and more numbers are accumulated that uh, we may learn that there is in fact no difference. But the way that I interpret the, the findings of this uh, negative trial are that it doesn't really provide evidence uh, uh, one way or another. 
Paul, tell us about your article. Sure. Well, it turns out that sleep is good. Um, <laughs> so I, I think this will be practice changing not to give it all away. But this is um, an article by Tess Sally et al. in JAMA Internal Medicine from earlier this month. So from February of 2022, it's the effect of sleep extension on objectively obsessed energy intake among adults with overweight in real life settings, colon, a randomized clinical trial. Um, so it basically, the, the question that this posits is if you if you have a patient who is in an overweight range uh, by BMI, who has insufficient sleep, meaning less than 6.5 hours a night, if you extend their sleep, does that have any impact on how many calories they take in, what kind of energy they expend, and what their body weight does? And so basically, the design of the study is they had people just sleep as they would normally for two weeks. They wore portable devices. They, they were actigraphers to sort of measure how much activity they were doing. They did these banana... Well, I, I'll get to that. And then after they sort of assessed their sleep, half the group went to individual counseling about their, their sleep practices. There's a structured interview. They were given sleep advice. And then the other half just continued to sleep as they, as they had been in the past, so less than six and a half hours a night. And it's a small study. It's about 40 patients in each arm. And so the intervention, they don't get to much more detail in terms of the test group was just got counseling that was individualized and they don't go into a whole lot of detail. And then in terms of the measurement of the energy expenditure, in terms of their energy intake, that kind of stuff reminded me of the montage of the Soviet training scene from Rocky <laughs> Four. Like they're doing metabolic carts, like they're being, they're <laughs> the weighing Dolph themselves part, not nude the Rocky twice daily. Like, 100%. Yeah, not Rocky, not, not not like pushing a log up a hill. Like I'm talking like the, like in a lab stuff, but so basically, the, the things that they assessed, you could not argue, were objective measures. They looked at actigraphy. They looked at their energy expenditure by fancy pants calculations. They looked at um, body composition by weight and some other indirect measures. But anyway, the long story short is after two weeks of intervention, they found that the patients who slept longer, and they did sleep longer after this intervention, which I think is probably one of the more important parts of the study, they slept by about 1.2 hours more than the control group. Those patients consume less energy, about 270 kilocalories per day on average. And then there actually was some weight loss in the group that actually had the sleep extension, as opposed to the group that continued to sleep poorly like I do. <laughs> so, you know, in terms of what this does to me, or how this would change my practice, not much. I, I wanted to, to ask Matt, so when you're counseling your outpatients about their sleep hygiene, what are the what are your specific points that you're counseling about in your primary care practice? Paul, as we were talking about before the, before we were recording, the eight, there was an, a very ironic moment at an ACP conference, the last one that was in person uh, a couple years ago, where they were the, the speaker was telling us that all your decisions in life are worse and you feel worse when you're when you're not sleeping well. And I think that this just goes along with that. And I think this is just another reason for us to tell our patients that sleep is important. Everything's better when you're getting the right amount of sleep, and that can help with weight loss as well, potentially. And uh, maybe maybe it's some nighttime eating behaviors. I thought that was part of probably, I tell people not to eat within a couple hours of bedtime, and, and maybe that was part of what was in, this, in the counseling here too. Yeah. I wanted to also note that it, and to your point, Matt, it would have been cool had they had the participants keep food diaries so that we could get some insight into sort of, you know, people's eating behavior. Because one hypothesis that this creates is, you know, are people basically going to bed and uh, not no longer awake when they would have a midnight snack? Uh, and that's why they had less calorie intake? Or is it something more complex and related to circadian rhythms? And I think they actually addressed that a little bit just because they because they want to keep this as objective as possible and they worried that having you document your intake might actually impact what your intake was. I think they were trying to keep it a little bit clean with that, which I think was an interesting point. 
Yes. They one really cool thing about the study, they really relied on no self-reported measures. So, you know, the sort of sacrifice that we make in not knowing when patients are eating, we sort of gain in uh, not risking influencing their behavior, the Hawthorne effect. So it's kind of a nice uh, feature of this study. Paul, will this change anything that you do before we move on to the next topic? Um, I'm going to I'm going to give it three hotcakes um, because I think it was a neat little study, but I think it was very small and sort of a short duration and it won't actually change a whole lot that I'll do. I'll still counsel people to to get as much sleep as they're able to and, and to avoid eating around bedtime, which I think was probably the <laughs> the main driver of some of the outcomes of this. So probably not many right. changes for me. Can I just ask really quickly, did they actually mention in the protocol what whether they told people not to eat right before bed? Like, was that part of the... Uh, it's almost instruction because I, I couldn't find that, but I don't know whether I missed I, it. It's in the supplement in terms of the things they okay. counseled on, and it was yeah. there wasn't even a throwaway line about food intake, which I thought was interesting. No. They like they mentioned caffeine, they mentioned exercise, and no one actually mentioned food. And I don't know if that's by design or just by omission, but it, it was not mentioned in the actual protocol that I saw. Yeah, I think it just over and over again the age old things that we tell everyone to do that no one does because it's hard to do them: <laughs> exercise, <laughs> sleep, mm-hmm. eat well. They actually work when you do them. I read this paper while eating an ice cream cone, so I felt extra bad about (laughs) myself. (laughs) That's okay. You're single parenting tonight. I mean, that's a term form of self-care. You you get a free pass. That's true. (laughs) This episode is sponsored by Indeed. And audience, let me tell you, I am really a fan of Indeed, and I actually had the chance to use it recently for some hiring we were doing at Curbsiders. We were looking for someone great to join us as a producer, and guess what? We were almost overwhelmed by how many great applicants we got from Indeed. Indeed let us attract, interview, and hire all in one place right on their platform. They made it easy to keep things organized, and they made sure that the applicants had our must-have requirements or else we didn't have to pay for those applications. Indeed is a powerful hiring partner that is going to help you do it all every step of the hiring process, and they have great tools like Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. What's Instant Match? Well, as soon as you sponsor a post, you're going to get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed's that match your job description, and then you can invite them right away to apply for your job. What are you waiting for? Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Offer is valid through March 31st. Go to Indeed.com slash internal medicine to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. That's Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Next up, uh, this actually, the day we're recording, this just just hit the news. This is new vaccine recommendations. And we, we don't often cover vaccines on the show, but this this is very big. If you're working in primary care, this gives you a lot of work to do, Paul. So get ready. Uh, first, the, the shorter one, in an effort to essentially eradicate hepatitis B, they are now recommending universal hepatitis B vaccination for people between the ages of 19 and 59. And if you're over 60 and you have comorbidities or you're at risk, then probably those people can get it too. Or if they're over 60, Paul, and they just ask and they feel like getting it, then you can give it to them too. Sure. So they're they're trying to make it easy on you. 
I'm not here to fight. Yeah. But Paul, probably a huge portion of your panel is going to now need this vaccine if they, you know, if they hadn't had it for their job or something like that. The other one is the pneumonia vaccine. And Paul, the previous pneumonia recommendations, did you have those memorized? They were pretty straightforward to follow, right? Sweet mercy. Yeah. It was like reading stereo instructions. I had to look them up every single time. <laughs> what they said, this back in June, uh, June 2021, they approved this new 20-valent pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, or PCV20, Paul. And uh, there's also another pneumococcal conjugate conjugate vaccine, PCV15, which is also new now. And those have now come into the guidelines and they're going to replace the old PCV13, which will no longer be recommended. And But PPSV23, Paul, is staying around. And the reason that they said they simplified these recommendations, which I'm going to tell you in a second, is because they wanted to maximize prevention of pneumococcal disease among adults reduce disparity and and simplify recommendations to improve the vaccine uptake. Because as I was just joking with Paul, it, it used to be kind of confusing, but now they basically say, if you're between the ages of 19 and 64 and you're immunocompromised or you have comorbidities, which is basically like anybody with chronic organ failure of one kind or another, lung, liver, heart, those people should get vaccinated. And if you're over 65, you or 65 and up, you need to get vaccinated. And the, the choices are the same. Either you give them PCV20 as a one shot in either either the less than 65 or the over 65 group, or you give them PCV15 followed a year later by PPSV23. So now you have the choice between a one shot recommend a one shot or a two shot regimen. And for people that have had previous like PPSV23, you can give them either one of these new conjugate vaccines. And if they've had just a conjugate vaccine, you you just give them PPSV23. So to close this one out, Paul, the gist of it is they're, we're trying to eradicate hepatitis B. So most, most of your adult patients or almost all your adult patients are eligible for this now. And then for the pneumococcal vaccinations, now we have, you can either give everybody a two-shot regimen or a one-shot regimen, and it's it's pretty easy to follow. So get get to work, primary care, because uh, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a, they just dropped a lot of work on us, but we'll we'll get it done. And I'll you know and I'll tell you in this time of COVID, there's something that our patients are wildly enthusiastic for, and that's more shots. They're going to be <laughs> super excited for these recommendations. I think. <laughs> Very good point. Next up, which uh, Rahul, I, when I saw this, I was, I just was like, they're tra- they're generating headlines with this study. That's what <laughs> this is. This is the juiciest headline. Like, vitamin D and omega threes prevent autoimmune disease. Tell us about this article. Not just recommending meat. That we have. <laughs> Such a click headline. <laughs> well, you're right. This is this is a juicy headline, and this is why I wanted to talk about this because you know people will hear about this from friends and families, and and I think it's kind of valuable and important to have a an informed perspective on this. So you're right to point out vitamin D has been a really tantalizing target for studies of prevention and treatment of like any disease having anything to do with inflammation and immunity. So the existence of this trial by uh, Han et al. at the Harvard uh, T.H. Chan School of Public Health uh, should be no surprise. Um, So this was a double-blind, two-by-two factorial randomized controlled trial, and it asked the following question. Does vitamin D supplementation with or without omega-3 fatty acids prevent the development of new autoimmune diseases in community-dwelling older adults? Okay. And because this was a two-by-two factorial trial, there were four comparison groups. 
people randomized to daily vitamin D supplementation alone, daily omega-3 supplementation alone, the combination of vitamin D and omega-3 together, or neither treatment and just placebo. And the top-line results of this trial were that among the 25,000 patients uh, over about a median of five years of follow-up, patients randomized to vitamin D with or without omega-3s did experience about a 20% relative reduction in the incidence of newly diagnosed self-reported autoimmune diseases of any kind. So this was technically a positive study, but I have some concerns about the application of these results, and I will share my reasoning with you now. But 23%, Rahul, that's huge. I know. <laughs> a quarter of patients didn't have autoimmune disease. That's a miracle. That's how that works, right? Yeah. I got the math oh, right? I feel like you're setting me up perfectly for this. Okay. So, you know, I mean, this is important. So, you know, many, pe- many people uh, who are busy will see that sort of positive uh, finding and will not uh, look uh, any deeper. But this paper actually provides a great opportunity uh, to do just that. And the audience probably heard Paul's cat is very excited <laughs> about this. Is that Ollie? <laughs> That's all. Yeah, of course, it's Ollie making another appearance. Sorry, everybody. Well, I want to know what Ollie thinks about the hotcakes at the end. So, um, okay. So there are kind of two concerns I have that I will share in the sort of uh, last minutes that we have here. So this first, this was an ancillary study that was done as part of something called the VITAL trial, which was a trial designed to assess the impact of vitamin D and omega-3s on the incidence of cancer and heart disease. And that trial was negative. The results were published in the New England Journal in 2019. So I'm kind of having a hard time reconciling this you know, positive result with that being the aim of the original trial. And you could imagine how if we did multiple studies um, using the same patients, but with different outcomes, that's not unlike doing many subgroup analyses and the likelihood of one of them yielding a positive finding by chance alone increases, otherwise known as a type one error. So you may ask, how do we know this? Well, it's from looking up the protocol. You can just Google the clinicaltrials.gov registry numbers at the end of the abstract. And this is a really vital step in verifying that the original, uh, I will pause for laughter. (laughs) (laughs) This is an important step in verifying that the primary outcomes are the same. And if they're not, that they're kind of clearly explained why they're changed. So I do this whenever I'm reading a randomized trial. But the second concern I have is a little more interesting. If you look at the absolute risk reduction That really helps you get a sense of how big of an effect we're talking about and helps put this in perspective in my mind. So unfortunately, because these results are expressed as a time to event rather than as a count, calculating this isn't as straightforward as just putting the number of events in the numerator and the total number of people in the denominator, okay? Because everyone can uh, contribute to different amounts of follow-up. So I recommend using an online calculator for this. Um, ClinCalc.com is a good one. And uh, you just plug in the number of patient years of follow-up, which unfortunately was not reported in this paper, so we have to estimate it. And here's how you do it. We know that the study enrolled about 25,000 people, median duration of follow-up of five years per patient. So you multiply those and you get 125,000 patient years of follow-up, okay? So assuming it's equivalent follow-up in each group, so we have no reason to assume it would be different, uh, that's 62,500 patient years per group, okay? So that's our denominator. And then using table two, we see that 155 events occurred in the control group and 123 events in the treatment group. So if you estimate the difference of 32 events over a total of 62,500 patient years, you can plug these numbers into the calculator and that gives you an absolute risk reduction of 0.03%. And that corresponds to a number needed to treat of about 2,700 over five years. So these observations make me worry about 
one of two possibilities. One, either this is a false positive result or this is a true positive result, but if there is a real effect, it's likely to be really small. And to apply these results, you'd have to ask the question, is it worthwhile to treat more than 2,000 older adults for five years with vitamin D to prevent one diagnosis of an autoimmune disease? Maybe, maybe not. And this is not to say that vitamin D supplementation is without value. There may be other good reasons to use it. But based on the results of this study, I'm not convinced that prevention of autoimmune disease is among them. Math is just the best, Paul. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's terrific. No, speaking of math, I you know I I guess the concern that I have is more of a practical one. I I love the points that you raised, Rahul, but you know I think the the mean age was something like sixty seven point one in this study. So this is this is not a patient population for whom polypharmacy is not a concern. Yes. And that was like a triple negative. I think I just did there. But what I'm saying is, to your point, if you need to treat three thousand patients to prevent one event, just to throw an additional pill at a patient who's probably you know on a bunch of them anyway, like that's not nothing. So it's not it's not an entirely benign thing. So I I, I appreciate yes. that point. And these aren't patients that would be on vitamin D anyway. They're not patients with vitamin D uh, insufficiency or anything, right? That's right. The The goal of the study was to enroll people kind of regardless of vitamin D status. And that, you know, also bring, brings up another question about uh, generalizability of these findings. And the uh, the mean 25-OH vitamin D level among patients in this study was kind of surprisingly high. And it makes me worry about the representativeness of the of the general population in the United States. Yeah. Certainly not the rep, the the northeast general population where where all four of us live because the we we I'm shocked when I see a normal level I I just figure the person's yeah. taking mega doses. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, if I'm checking, I'm just expecting to replete. Like that's yeah. just kind of <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, Rahul, did you want to assign a hot cake rating for this, and, and then I'll I'll round us out. Uh, I'll I'll finish things up with a quick some quick talk of Pocus. But what what's your hot cake? recommendation for this. Sure. Important learning opportunity. Important for us to know how to do this. Two out of five hotcakes. All right. Uh, thank you. So to take us home, Paul, you and I are both POCUS enthusiasts. And the ultrasound JVP article that came out right at the end of December in the Annals of Internal Medicine by Wang et al., what did you think of that? The way that they described measuring the JVP? Was this practice changing? Is this something that you're using clinically? What do you think? It's something that I have not used as often clinically in the past. This this actually probably will be practice changing for me because I think the technique they describe is actually a lot more uh, achievable. We were, we were talking offline, and, and I'll ask you to maybe describe it. But I, it's, I find that portable ultrasounds, it's a little bit challenging to use in the neck area, especially in certain planes because I just tend to slip slide all over the place. And this seems to be a little bit more of a, a straightforward way to actually assess um, JVP and, and CVP um, indirectly that way. So this this is something that I will probably do differently. And this was a small this was a small study where two cardiology fellows and a cardiology attending who are all trained in echo at two different hospitals, I believe, in the same system were doing just doing ultrasound on patients who were admitted for heart failure who were also going for right heart cast. So they were able to compare. And it it was a pretty good it was pretty good. You can either measure it the same way we measure JVP, often with the patient laying, reclining in bed at 30 to 45 degrees, and you can quantitatively measure from the sternal angle um, how high up you find with the ultrasound viewed transversely. So I think the what you were referring to, Paul, is that often you're taught to do this, trans, you, you 
find the carotid and the and the jugular vein in the transverse, and then you follow it up until you see it collapsing, and then you try to turn longitudinally to see them both in the same plane, and that is very hard to do. This simplifies it and says, no, just keep it in the transverse plane, so essentially you're holding so your beam's parallel to the ground, and then you just find the point of collapse, and that that's one way to do it. But what I was excited about is the easier way. They they showed that a, just a qualitative, make it binary, can you see it or can't you see it, with the patient either sitting perfectly upright in bed with their legs out in front of them or just seated in a chair with their back supported against the wall. Uh, can you see the JVP above the clavicle? And if you can, that's a positive. If you can't, it's it's a negative and um, the positive correlated to an elevated central venous pressure on right heart cath. So I think it's really practical. If people have handheld ultrasound or or cart-based ultrasound, I would recommend you start to practice this because for patients with a, a challenging habitus, it, it, it can be very useful. And I, I have used it in my work as a hospitalist. Nora, are you using this? You're you're a you're a hip third year resident. You're, you know, I'm sure you've had uh, ultrasound That's, training. You know, sounds I, so natural. Yeah, um, very very hip. All of us here tonight. Um, but uh, we definitely have a bunch of uh, pocket ultrasounds around. Um, I can't say actually that recently my uh, cardiology. Uh, teams have used it, but I did when I was in medical school, actually, I had a cardiologist who would do it um, with his, he was one of the first yeah. to carry it around. So I, 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 without a doubt, think that this is going to be coming our way soon. I, I think that there's just more and more publishing about, you know, using ultrasound for workup of shortness of breath, for, mm -hmm. for deep rapid diagnosis of DVT, yep. and now for, for assessing JVP. I, I think it's pretty practical and I think it's going to become more and more common. Rahul? I would like to point out one thing about this really cool study. And uh, I think my personal bias is that I'm just really annoyed that I kind of finished my training before everyone learned how to use ultrasound. So <laughs> th there's a big learning curve for me here. Um, th there is a lot of potential for interoperator variability in technique here. You know, you're kind of describing um, the positioning of the probe and the authors note that it's important not to compress the vein. So, you know, you could imagine how the test characteristics could depend on the operator skill. And then the other thing to keep in mind is there's an important issue affecting studies like this, which is something called spectrum bias. And this has to do with the population of patients in which the test was studied. So these were all patients who are destined to get right heart catheterization, basically for volume status determination and heart failure. So that's great because these are often patients in whom we need help determining their volume status. So that is a population in which I'm interested in using this. But just keep in mind, the test may have different characteristics in other patient populations. So I would not necessarily expect these results to translate to, to other groups. That's why we pay him the big bucks, folks. He's here. <laughs> it's it's good to have a professional with us, Rahul. I don't know it's about just, that. It really is. <laughs> so let me bring it down. So what I'm hearing is that patients who are already slated for rate heart catheterization are different than patients who are not. Is that what you're <laughs> yeah, telling me? Yeah, nothing. Or potentially. Nothing, uh, nothing earth shattering there. It, it, <laughs> and Rahul... I, I was oh go ahead make well, your point, say, it, it would have been really cool to know uh, for the qualitative assessment just how many of those uh, JVPs were just plain like visible with the naked eye because that was you know that's kind of how we do things now so for comparison mm -hmm. it would have been they did didn't they they did yeah. the, oh, the visual JVP okay. in this too and they did say that the visual JVP if you could see it it's good and the ultrasound the quantitative ultrasound JVP 
versus the quantitative visual JVP were very similar, where you measure the sternal angle and you you have the patient reclined in bed. So they were similar. Oh, they did have a visual JVP. One little paragraph about it. Rahul, I guess that proves it was yeah, a good suggestion then. Yeah. So <laughs> I would, and Rahul, I would say. If you ever have the luxury of attending a, an ultrasound course, especially if Renee Diverstall is is there, uh, then you then you're then you'll be very lucky. And that's Paul and I learned uh, not in trainings. We learned after training through just practicing a lot and and attending courses. So I, if you ever have the chance, I would really highly recommend it. Uh, either ACP or AIUM are two great courses. I'm sure there's other ones all over the place too. Sign me up. So. With that, I think we need to wrap things up here, Paul. What are you going to say? Oh, just a quick note that the video that accompanies this article is actually really nice that goes through the technique and it's probably worth taking a look at if you're curious because they, they actually have a video that goes along with the article that demonstrates yeah. exactly what their technique was that I found very helpful. And we, we have that linked in the show notes. Thank you, Paul. And can you take us into the outro? <laughs> sure. Sure. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. No takers? Yeah, me. Oh, all right. I thought I could make it through. Get your show notes <laughs> at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest, edited by the great Nora Toronto, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You can also contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can get free CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. A special thanks to all my co-hosts tonight for helping to write and produce this episode. Beth Garbs Garbatelli is our executive producer and still runs our Twitter. As Paul said, Nora is the editor for the Digest. Maddie Mad Dog Morgan is on Instagram. Tima Karganov does the website. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. Claire Morgan of Notterly edits our audio. And finally, Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Wada. And I've been Dr. Rahul Balvant Ganatra. I've been Dr. Nora Plout Toronto. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, thank you and goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>